Hey, y'all don't know it, but that puppy weighs about 100 pounds. I mean, if I was grunting, it wasn't because it was light. I was grunting because it was heavy. Um, But good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffin-Hagen. I'm one of our pastors here at my church, and I want to welcome y'all here. Richard, welcome you. I want to welcome you as well, folks watching online and everybody that's here. You could be a lot of different places this morning, but you're here in the cold and the wet and the rainy, so I'm thankful for that. I want to, before we get started... Uh, on this message, I want to, there's something we talked about about three, four weeks ago in December, and I told you that I thought <clears throat> that uh, that God would have, this is in regarding the name change, you know, uh, the name of our church, and I thought that we would, I really thought that we would have some clarity as a, as a body and as a leadership team of where, which direction we're going on as far as the name of the church goes, and y'all do know that y'all the body of believers is the church, and it's not the name of the church, and it's not this physicalness of it. But the truth of the matter is, I'm going to give you an update that's really not an update, because the update is we, no, we just don't have clarity on where the Lord is leading us in that. We're not on some timeline where we've got to make decisions, and you've got a box there and a box there and a box back there, and I think there's one out in the, in the hall out there. And if you've got suggestions on the name of the church, you write it on an index card anonymously, and stick it in there. And the Lord is going to provide that. He always does. And uh, we just got to believe that that'll, when, when, the right, when the right time comes, that'll, that'll be when it is. But today, again, we are in the second week of this series uh, called The Gospel Makes Freakish Demands. It makes freakish demands. And we're looking at those demands. And we're looking at what the gospel truly says. And if we really believe this book, what does it say? And how that kind of plays out. Last week, we were talking about the God. We kind of did a flyover of what this series is going to be, but we looked at, at, at the gospel, and we looked at how the gospel affects our lives. And if we really believe the gospel, if we really believe what the book says, then, then it ought to change the way that we live. It ought to change the way that we operate churches, and it ought to, it ought to change things. If we don't really believe the book, well, then we're just kind of playing games around here, and we don't need to be doing that. But if we believe it, if we believe the book, if we believe Jesus' words, then there are freakish implications for us. There's freakish implications for the way that we view our lives, the way we view the church, freakish implications about the way we view the lost people that are non-Christians, and the way that we view the poor. And I want to give you, uh, I want to give you two ingredients of something this morning, because the gospel truly does demand freakish compassion that's the title of the message today the gospel demands freakish compassion do y'all all have a worship guide i hope you do because we're going to be diving into scripture if you don't have a worship guide raise your hand because i want to get somebody will get one in your hands but i want to show you two ingredients that make up freakish compassion two two ingredients that when you put them in in the ninja that they make up uh, freakish compassion after you turn the ninja on Y'all know what a ninja is, don't you? That was weak. Thank you. Thank you. First ingredient of freakish compassion is this, that we would have a supernatural, not a natural, a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. A supernatural awareness of the state of a, of, of a non-unbeliever. The status, the what they, we need to, uh, uh, to an understanding of the, of the status of someone who has not bent the knee that is not a, a Christ follower, number one. 
Second ingredient is that we would have sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ. Sacrificial obedience to what Jesus calls us to do. That we would sacrificially be saying, I am in, tell me what to do, and I will do it. That's the, to, to what His commands, what He demands of us. And if you can blend those things, those two things together, you land with the, the compassion that the gospel requires. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10. Latter, uh, the, the ending part, last four, five, six verses of 9, and then about the first 20 verses of chapter 10. And those verses in chapter 9 at the end, they provide, they provide like a bridge between a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost and the commission of Christ to go to those who are lost. Matthew chapter 10 paints, gives us an image, a picture of the condition of the, <clears throat> of the lost, and then I want you to see how Jesus responds to that condition because he understands their condition, knows them better than anybody, knows me and you better than anybody. So how he responds to that when he calls out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, which is what he does in Matthew 10. And, and so just, just look with me, and you, it's going to be on the screen, and then you've got it in your worship guide. At Beginning in verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9, he says, it's, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So that's the, there's, there's the condition of the lost. And then it transitions in verse 38 to the beginnings of the commissioning of Christ, to, the, to what he says needs to happen. And verse 38 says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the field. So here's this picture of the condition of the lost leading into the commission of Christ. And I want you to see a few things here. We're going to work through the end of 9 and into 10. And I want you to see, I don't know, three or four things. Number one is you've got to see their size. You've got to see their size. When Jesus saw the crowds in verse 36, he saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. There's about 3 million people at that time around the Sea of Galilee. That's where he was. About 3 million people. He sees the crowd. Does he tell them to go away? Does he, is he disgusted with them? No, he says, the book says he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And it's, there's a, the word that's used there in the original language, there's a real uh, physical nature to the word. That he, he felt agonizing, physically agonizing uh, compassion. He was agonized emotionally. He was agonized physically. He was agonized spiritually when he saw the crowds. And that resulted, that, that was the compassion. And this is the Jesus that lives inside of me and you, if you are a Christ follower. So for us, for us, we have got to look beyond our comfort. We've got to look beyond, as we sit here today, beyond the comfortable seats that we're sitting in and see the crowds. Today, 2019, 
7.7 billion people on the planet. We talked about it last week. About a third say that they are a Christian. If that's true, that's 5 billion people that aren't. It's 5 billion people, 200,000 in our little area who are on a road that the Scripture and Jesus says leads to eternal hell. If the gospel's true, there's 5 billion people who are headed for destruction. And if that's the case, if we believe that, and if those stats are right, then we can't be playing games up here in the church. I mean, we can't. We have got to be on the trail. We've got to be on the trail hunting after the lost. Not if the crowd is of that size. We've got to be on the trail. So number one, we've got to see, we got to see their size. Second, we've got to feel their suffering. Jesus didn't just see their size and he didn't just see their sin. He saw the depth of the suffering that the sin caused. Y'all do know that's what happens. Every one of us, sin causes suffering on some level. We've got to feel the suffering of the lost. He did. And he says, in verse 36, he says that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so whether he was preaching to them or whether, whether he was healing them, he had an overwhelming compassion for the people that are around him. And the people that were around him, three million of them in, around the Sea of Galilee, they were sinners. And at the end of the day, they're sinning against him. And there was nothing, there was nothing that they brought to the table that warranted the compassion that he showed them. Does that make sense the way I said that? There was nothing about them that warranted the compassion that he showed them. Me and you, we respond to others very, very differently by nature, very differently than he does. He, his response of compassion wasn't based on externals. It wasn't based on, on others or other people. His compassion is just based on an internal reality of who he was. It's a compassion that's just who he is. And the reality for us is the only way that me and you could ever in a billion years ever have that kind of compassion is if he lived inside of us. We couldn't do it. It's not who we are. It's so difficult for... It's so different than the way that we view sinners and people in their sin and evidences of their sin. We, we get frustrated and we maybe, we get, uh, maybe we get indignant Maybe we even get disgusted when we see it sometimes. And that's just naturally how we react. That's what people do. Emotionally, we just kind of, nat- that's in our, in our nature. But it is supernatural, totally supernatural, for us to see sin and feel compassion. It's natural for us to see sin and be disgusted by it. But, but it's, un- it's, it's supernatural for us to be able to identify with people's sin and their suffering and their pain, but it's just who Jesus is. It's not just who we are. It's got to be supernatural for us to be able to do that. And so we've we got to see their size, and we've got to, supernaturally, we've got to be able to feel their suffering. And then third, we've got to realize, understand the real separation the separation between an unbeliever and the Lord. Verse 37 says the harvest 
chapter 9, verse 37, says the harvest is plentiful. 38 goes on about the Lord of the harvest. But 37 says the harvest is plentiful. Whenever Scripture mentions harvest, and it's throughout Old Testament and New Testament, the harvest is biblical imagery for judgment, for when judgment happens. And I'm not going to have time to go through all these, but I want you to write these down. Look at Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, there's a multitude of people in the harvest, and their eternal destiny is at stake. Y'all, that's what it is. People's eternal destiny is at stake. And there's this Lord of the harvest that's overseeing this in Joel chapter 3. Write this down. It's the same picture that's in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is talking about the wheat and the tares, and the wheat are getting sifted and separated from the tares, and the wheat are separated off for an eternity with the Lord, and the tares are separated off for an eternity in torment. That's what he's doing when he's separating. He's separating the righteous from the unrighteous. And when Jesus looked at the crowds, think about this. He looks at the crowds around the Sea of Galilee, playing on the beach, fishing, doing whatever it is that they're doing all around the Sea of Galilee. And here's what he sees, eternities at stake. That's what he sees, a smiling kid's face. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? That, that, that kid's eternity is at stake. If that sweet little child dies lost, he's going to spend an eternity. It, it, that's what he sees. And that, y'all, that's what is at stake. It's exactly what Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we looked at that last week. Verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 8 says, He will punish those who do not, do not know God. Verse 9, They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Do we believe that? that? That is what the Bible teaches. The Word says that there's a day coming. It's coming when multitudes of people are going to be punished with everlasting destruction. Revelations 20.15 says they're going to be thrown into a lake of fire. And, and these are difficult passages, and the point is this. The point is this, and I know... I know at this point there are some people and they're listening or watching or even in this room that are going to say, you know what? You check out and say, it's not real and I don't believe those verses. And that's an option. It's an option I hope that we don't take. But it's an option. But it's not an option if you're a Christ follower because we don't get to pick and choose and say, you know what? I'm not going to... I'm not going to really believe the the passages and the verses that Jesus... that are recorded of Christ's words that are difficult. We're just going to skip those and throw those out. You can't do that. The question is, do we believe him? Do we believe the book and what he says is in the, in the book? And if we do, then we fall on our faces and we beg the Lord to open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the condition of the lost. That We need to see it like that. We, that's the way that, that's the lens that we need to view the world through. And we can't just ignore the crowds and just not hear the cries of the lost. And there is a tendency, and put me in the front of the line, I mean, there's a tendency for us to like just ring and just wash our hands of all of it and and, and just thank God that I'm not a sinner like those people over there. That would be our tendency is to say things like that. And that is exactly what Jesus spent his entire ministry rebuking that thought. And so I'm like, God, give us this, a, a, a gripping, maybe a compelling, but for sure a supernatural awareness of the condition of lost people. That's the first ingredient 
that goes in that blender of, uh, to, to create freakish compassion. We've got to understand their lostness, and it's very unnatural to us. It's got to come from the Lord. The second ingredient of this is, is a sacrificial obedience to the commission of Christ. A sacrificial obedience to, to what He calls us to do. And He calls us first to pray. He sees the crowds. And He has compassion. And in verse 38, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. The commission of Christ calls us first to pray. He says, Disciples, disciples, y'all, look at the harvest. Look at the harvest. Get on your knees and pray. We need workers. Pray that God would send out workers into the field. You want to know what I do every day for y'all? You know what I do when I get on my knees and I pray? I pray that, that the Lord of the harvest would send out people from our church out into the harvest. That He would send out students from our church into the schools with their friends and work in the harvest. That He would send out soldiers from Fort Benning into the world to work into the harvest. That He would send out business people, businessmen and businesswomen in our church out into the marketplace to work in the harvest. You know, that He'd send out mamas and daddies into their communities in Columbus, Georgia and beyond to work in the harvest. That's what I pray all the time for us, that we would be a people that are sent out from this room, out them doors out there, to, the harvest is out there to work in the harvest. The harvest is around our Thanksgiving tables with our families because we all have people in our families that are lost. The harvest is sitting right next to you. The harvest is out there. It's everywhere. And so he calls us to pray about that. And then he calls us, he calls us to go. He calls us to go. He directs us to go. What happens uh, in chapter 10 is he calls his disciples to him. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, to him, and it's a cool word that's used there, 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And that, so, okay, first he says to them, since you're praying, because he just said pray, you're, you're prayed up, now go. Now go. The picture is that he, that word that is used there when it says he called them to him, it's like, it's like this, the, 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 the image is that he grabs them and don't get, say, you said Jesus grabbed somebody around the throat. No, I didn't. But it's the image of he grabs them and he brings them. It's getting up in somebody's face and giving them instructions. And that's what he does in the first part of, of chapter 10. It, it's, it is very cool imagery. And the, so he gives them instructions beginning in verse 5. It says, These twelve, Jesus sent the twelve, he just, in verses 2, 3, and 4, he lists the twelve. These twelve, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. And this, this word picture here, it is, it's militaristic. It is, it is, it is military terms. It is, it is like a commander who is calling his guys in and his soldiers and he's giving them orders. And when the commander gives the soldiers orders, that's not a time for the soldier to his, express his opinion about the orders. 
Anybody here in the military ever served in the military? I would imagine so. The commander gives you orders. You don't give him your opinion about the orders. It's not the way it works. Soldiers obey the orders. And that is what Christ is doing in, in chapter 10. And it's a reminder for all of us as children of God that we are not necessarily in a position to express our opinion. We're in a position to obey the orders. And I want to summarize, because we can't just step through all of them, I want to summarize some of the orders that he gives us. How is it that he, uh, that he commissions his people? This commission was given in, in chapter 10 of Matthew, that this commission was given to certain disciples at a certain moment in history. But at the same time, there's timeless principles there that apply, along with the rest of Scripture, but apply to all disciples for all time. And so this is the Jesus who commissioned them. This is the Jesus who commissions us. And I want you to hear how he commissions his people. First of all, he says, go to great need. Go to great need. Verses 5 and 6 again. He sent them out with the following instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or any, uh, any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And that's very specific. At that time to those disciples, he's saying, you go to the Jews. That's the lost sheep of Israel. We know in today's times, because of the rest of Scripture says, and in all the Gospels, go to the nations. We're not called to just go to the Jews. They were at that time, he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel first. Verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now listen to verse 8. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons freely you have received and freely give. He is calling them to, to go first. He is calling them to go to the diseased. Heal the sick. Go to the sick. Don't go to the healthy. Go to the sick. Not the people that it's that easy to be around. It's not. It's people that it's hard to be around. It may get you sick. Go to the sick. Not where it's safe. Go to the sick. Go to the danger. Go to the dangerous places, he said. Go to the diseased. Number one. Number two, he says, go to the dying. He says, raise the dead. Go to the dying. Hang out with people that are dying. Spend time with them. Love on them. Put your arm around them. Talk to them. Maybe more importantly than that, listen to them. Hang out with them, he says. Third, he says, go to the despised. He says, cleanse those who have leprosy. You know how nasty leprosy is? I got a friend who spent half his life, and today he's still there, named Kurt Nowry, in India, in a leper colony. Do you know leper colonies still exist? I didn't, but they do. In that day... No, they would not. There's no way they would have been anywhere near anybody with leprosy. And Jesus says that's where you need to go. Go cleanse the lepers. Jesus says go to them. You know what he says? Go to the people that nobody else wants to go to. That's what he's telling. That's what he's saying. Go to the despised. Y'all, our M2540 team, you know where they go? You know what the leper colony of today is? It's a sex offender camp at the, at the intersection of, of J.R. Allen and the 2nd Avenue. That's the leper colony of today. And I'd be standing up here lying if, it hadn't, if I didn't tell you that it's kind of icky. But that's where he says, that's a Bible word, by the way. That's, but that's where, that's where he says to go. 
Go to the people that nobody else wants to go to. That's where Jesus went, is it not? The holy roller Pharisee said, Why are you talking to a tax collector? Oh my gosh, you're hanging out with somebody with leprosy? Somebody grab that man and throw him in the bath. He done got dirty. But that's where he tells us to go. And then he says, Drive out demons. Go to the dirty. Because what? The dirty are possessed with demons. Go, he gives them authority. What verse is it? Verse 30, 10-1. He said, he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits. How are you going to drive out an impure spirit if you're just hanging out with saved people? I mean, that is not what he tells us to do. Thank you for that, amen. You've got to be with somebody with an impure spirit to drive out an impure spirit. It doesn't take 40 PhDs to figure that out, right? So he says, go to the dirty. Very clearly, he says, you know what? He says, you know the people that the world ignores? You know the people that the world avoids? You know the people that the world oppresses? You know the people that the world despises? Yeah, that's the ones that I want you all to go hang out with. That's what he says. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about the implications of the gospel for the poor. But if we're a church, if you're a people, if I'm a pastor that is only hanging out with the healthy and with the muckety-mucks, then, then, then we're being disobedient to Christ. If, I, if I'm a pastor and you're a church and we're a people that is only hanging out with the well and the well-to-do in our holy little huddle, then we're being disobedient to what Christ says. Because you know what he says? Go to the diseased, go to the dying, go to the despised, and go to the dirty. That's who he says to go to. And look at verse 9, chapter 10, verse 9. He says, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirts or sandals or staff for the worker, in verse 10, for the worker is worth his keep. Here's the beauty. Here's what he says. When you go to the need, when you go to the need, you're going to learn to trust me. I love that. I love it. He says, reach out to the need and you'll find that I'm sufficient to fulfill your need and their need. That's what he says. He tells them, don't take an extra bag, don't take an extra... This is the way he sent his guys out now. Think about this. Their world's turning upside down. They're packing all their stuff. Man, they're get, Peter's over there finding him four pair, pair of sandals to take because they may get mad. Jesus said, no, you don't need no shoes, you don't need no bag, you don't need no money, you don't need another cloak, you don't need another tunic. You know what you need, Peter? You need me. That's what he says. Trust me because I'm the one that's got your back. You don't need anything but me because I'm sufficient to fulfill everything you need and everything that they need. And then he says, go to great danger. Verse 11, he starts talking about, of chapter 10. Verse 11, he starts talking about the homes that you're going to go into and the people that you're going to come across. And you know what the truth is? You're going to go in homes for real, and some of them are going to reject you. Some of them are going to kick you in the rear end out the front door, but some of them are going to accept you. And, and, and here's what he says, verses 11 through 14. He says, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. And then he gets down to verse 16. And in verse 16, listen to what he says. This is a critical verse. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Now, do you think that that is intended to be encouragement? 
What is the responsibility of a shepherd? Is a shepherd to send the sheep out there with the wolves? No, a shepherd is to keep the sheep from getting anywhere near the wolves. A shepherd's job is to keep the wolves away from the sheep. Because what does the wolf want to do? He wants to eat the sheep, right? And the shepherd's job is to keep the wolf, again, this is not like, a, uh, like some agricultural Ph.D. The shepherd keeps the wolf from eating the sheep. But think about it. Jesus says this, when you go out, this is what it's going to be like. You're going out like an old dumb sheep walking into the middle of a bunch of wolves. And, and it's going to seem like the most totally senseless thing. What are y'all thinking about going into places like that? Don't you know what is involved there? Don't you know the kind of people that are down there in that neighborhood? Don't you know that? Don't you know it's dangerous? Don't you know it's nasty? Don't you know it's filthy? Don't you know they smell terrible? Y'all, the people in our homeless ministry, the M2540, the people in our generations ministry, that's what they do. That's what they do every week. That's what y'all do every week. Y'all, you probably got an email from me. You may not have read it. If you didn't, I'd say go back and read it yesterday or the day before yesterday. We just got given by the Baptist, Columbus Baptist Association a building. Y'all, that building ain't in North Columbus. <laughs> that building is where we serve. That building is in the middle of exactly where Jesus is telling us to go. And you know what's going to happen in that building? It's going to house, it's going to be a, and they gave the building to us. It's going to be a ministry center in the place where the wolves are. The, the homeless ministry will live there. Generations the foster care prevention ministry will live there. There's a partnership being worked through with Mercy Med. Y'all ever heard of Mercy Med? Unbelievable ministry is Mercy Med. Job training will take place there. At the end of the day, there'll be a Jesus-focused, inpatient addiction recovery center. That ain't going to be tomorrow, but it's going to be. Because you know why? What God say? I am sufficient to fulfill your needs and their needs. No doubt. I mean, that ought to get an amen. People are going to be able to get their GED there. Look, that is going to be a, a place of ministry in, in our community. In, in our community. And people are going to think we're nuts. They're going to think we're nuts. They're going to think you're nuts because we're, in, we're going into the place where we shouldn't be going into. But, but here's what Jesus says. Well, that's my design. That's the way that I do what I do. He says, you're going to find yourself in the middle of evil, vicious, greedy people that may not want you there, but that's the way that I have designed this thing to work. We don't think that way. I mean, we, human beings by our nature, we don't really think that way. We think if it's dangerous, God is not in it. We think if it's going to cost us our money, God's not in it. We think if, it's going to, if we may get sick, God's not in it. But what if... That all of that is really the criteria by which we can know that he is in it. Not not in it, but he is in it. Like sheep among wolves go to danger. Let it be said of the people in this church. By the wolves. By people. Let it be said that those people are nuts for going into places like that. They're moving towards the danger. They're moving towards the sickness. They're moving towards the disease. And Jesus says, yeah, that's what it means to be my disciple. Like sheep going into the wolves. 
And then he says in the latter part of verse 16, he says, therefore be shrewd sheep going into wolves. Therefore be shrewd as snakes. So be as foolish as a sheep, but as smart as a snake. And I remember reading that last week and thinking, what? I got to be as foolish as a sheep and be as smart as a snake. And I had to sit there and try to figure out what does that really mean? Because it's almost nonsensical. But here's what Jesus is saying. I'm telling you to go, and I'm telling you to go without reservation. But when you get there, be wise. When you get there, be smart. You go, because I'm telling you to go. But I'm going to impart wisdom to you. So when you get there, be wise. And it is a, like a perfect snapshot of Jesus on his way to the cross, standing boldly before Pilate like what? Like a sheep among the wolves. That was him, like a sheep among the wolves. But he spoke, he speaks with wisdom. He doesn't incite Jesus at the cross and in that whole scenario that weekend. He doesn't incite unnecessary, like, trouble. He doesn't incite unnecessary conflict. He knows conflict is coming, but he speaks with wisdom. He's wise. And so he tells us, be, be smart, be as shrewd as a snake. And then at the end of verse 16, he says what? Be as innocent as a dove. Be as foolish as a sheep, as smart as a snake, and as pure as a dove. So when you're in the middle of the wolves, not if you're in the middle of the wolves, when you're in the middle of the wolves, don't let them have anything against you. Don't do something or say something that will give them ammunition to use against you. Don't be belligerent. This is what he's saying. Don't be abusive. Don't be abrasive. Don't be belligerent. Uh, have an innocence that is as pure as a dove. Have compassion. That's what they need to see. They need to see the compassion in Christ's people. Jesus went before those who killed him with that. And he says, you do the same thing. And here's his promise. Just listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, we spend too much time worrying about stuff. And he tells us, Throughout the scripture, stop worrying about it. I got it. So he's, that's kind of what he's saying right here. He says, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. If you go to the need, he says, if you go to the need, if you go to the disease, whatever, you go to the need, you'll learn how to trust his provision. As you go into danger, You'll learn to trust His power. You'll learn to trust Him ultimately. His words, verse 20, His words will fill your mind. His words will, will fill your mind and give you the appropriate thing to speak and to say. And Jesus says, go into the danger. And you know when you get into the danger that you're not alone. You go, I am with you. Don't you know if he lives inside of you, it's not like he sees what road you're turning on and he says, I'm out of here. It don't work that way. He is inside of you in your heart and he is with us in every little situation that we are in. And he says, I got your back and I'll empower you with what to say and I'll empower you with what to, how to live and I, will, and I will empower you in what to preach. And this is the only way that one brother in India who was skinned alive could look at the very people skinning him alive and say to them, today you take off one of my cloaks, but I put on a timeless cloak. 
That's what he says as they are skinning him alive. Y'all, that ain't preacher talk. That's for real stuff. It's the, how do you do that if the Spirit of Christ is not in you? There is absolutely no way. There's just no way that you could. It's the same way that a fellow named Christopher Love, his wife in 1651, his wife, he's on the way to the gallows, Christopher Love, and his wife is seeing this, and his wife says to him, Today they will sever you from your physical head, but they can never sever you from your spiritual head, Jesus Christ. And she applauded him as he goes by. You can't do that. It, 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 without Christ in you, you can't do that. And Jesus says, I guarantee you, y'all, I promise you, it's in those moments, it's in those moments that I will be with you and you will learn and be able to depend on me. And look, here's the reality. If we live our lives within the safety and the security that we create, the safety and security that we create, then we don't have, we don't have any need for God. We don't have any need for His power. We don't have any need for His Spirit. But if we live on the front lines, making the gospel known in Columbus, Georgia, and, and in the world, risking our lives to go into those places, then we will all of a sudden we'll say, oh, we need, I need Him. I need the Spirit of God. I need you inside of me. I need to lean on you. And he says you're going to need his power. So he says go to great need. Go to great need. And so the end of Matthew chapter 9, it is all about compassion. He sees the crowd. He has compassion. It's unnatural for us. But the Scripture says he sees the crowd. He had compassion. And it all comes full circle with the instructions that he gives us in chapter 10. And they're hard instructions. I'm not going to sit and try to act like they're easy. They're hard. Well, why are they hard instructions? Think about it. The reason is there's five plus billion people who don't know Jesus and they need to see him. And they're not going to see Christ in lives that are not identified with him. They're not going to see Christ in lives that are consumed with earthly pleasures and, and, and earthly desires and worldly comfort. They're not going to see Christ in that, and that will lead to a Christless eternity. That is what is at stake. A Christless eternity is at stake. It is all, totally, all about compassion. Because you know what? They need to see Christ in you. And they need to see Christ in you. And you, and you, and you, and me. That is what the harvest, that's what they need to see. And they can't see Christ in someone who's not identified with Him. And you know what? It is worth it. Matthew chapter 10 is worth it for the sake of the people that don't know Him. It is worth it. That is what we were called to do. And these words, these, like, these kind of words, they're so foreign to 2019 Christianity. So foreign to 21st century Christianity. Because we ask ourselves what's in it for me when we need to be asking what's in it for them. And what's in it for them is eternity. It's eternity. Our compassion can lead to their eternity. That ought to get an amen. Our compassion can lead to their eternity. Somebody tattoo that on your arm. I mean, because that is the truth. 
It is our compassion that can lead to folks' forever. If we ask what's in it for them rather than what's in it for me, it changes everything about the way we live, the way we schedule our time, the way we kind of plan our lives and our families and the church. It changes everything because we have a gospel that demands freakish compassion. He has given us orders, clear orders, and we're not living for ourselves any, anymore. Some, we're not living for some selfish re- reward or some uh, self-saturated uh, kind of Christianity. We have put all of those things aside. We die to those things and we live in Christ. We live to Christ's reward, to eternal pleasure, not worldly pleasure, to eternal desires and plans, but not, not fleshly desires and plans. Guys, believers, Christians, it, we're not our own. If we're a believer, we are no longer our own. It is for the sake of the billions of people who are headed to an eternity in hell. We're not our own. Whatever this means for our lives, it means this. The gospel demands that we sacrifice for the sake of the people that do not know Him. We sacrifice, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we sacrifice for the people that don't know Him. That right there is freakish compassion. So it's like, do we believe what the book says? about those that are lost. And if we do, it affects our schedule and it affects our time and it affects our money and it affects our our resources in this church and everything for the sake of those who don't know Christ. God wants us on that trail down there for the sake of the lost. That's why He wants us on that trail down there. For the sake of the folks that don't know know Him. Y'all, we pray, we go. We get all prayed up, and then we go. We don't just pray and then go to sleep. And then we don't go without praying. It's not what he says. That's not the command. We pray and we go. That's what we're called to do. And I want, I want you all to begin to really think about and consider um, doing Matthew nine thirty-seven and 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send his workers into the harvest. And, but you've got to be able to see the crowds and you've got to be able to feel their, 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 their suffering and you have to be able to understand their separation. And as a result, when you see that, you cry out to God to do something about it. And He will do so. You know what you cry out for Him to do? Send me. Send us. That's the prayer in Matthew 9.38. And so I'd pray with me right now. Lord, make me. Make my family. Lord, make this church, make all of us a people with freakish compassion. Lord, make us a people, a family who sacrifices for the sake of the lost. That we sacrifice, Lord, for the sake of the lost. I pray, Lord, that you would send workers in your harvest from this house. Make this house a base of ministry. Lord, I pray that you make that that land down there on that trail, a base of ministry for the world. Lord, I pray that you make that little ministry center on the corner of 35th and 6th Avenue that you just provided us a base of ministry to work in the harvest. Lord, help us to see the the condition of the lost, to realize their suffering, to understand, Lord, to understand their separation from you. Give us the compassion to do something about it. And Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Now look, 
Here's, here's the deal. You can't display His compassion if He ain't living inside of you. Does that make sense? You can't. I mean, you just, you can't. The world cannot see Christ in you if Christ is not in you. That doesn't take a seminary degree either. He can't, the world can't, you can't display Christ if Christ is not in you. So it all begins, it doesn't all begin with the outreach. It all begins with Jesus living inside of us. And so here's my prayer, fervent prayer, is that if you don't know Him today, that when you walk out that door, you got a new friend. And that new friend is, is inside of you. And guess what? When you turn on 35th Street to go to this new ministry center, you didn't leave him on 2nd Avenue because he's going with you everywhere you go. You can't get him out. You can't get scared and he leaves. And so if you don't know him, I would ask that you would come to know him today. And it's not difficult either. It is I repent, I confess my sin, and I repent of my sin. And I believe, Lord, that you died on the cross to save me, to buy me back from my sinfulness. That's, that's it. You, you, you repent and you believe. And that he died and that he was resurrected and he was as dead as a doornail in that tomb. And he was as alive as us sitting right here today when he walked out of that tomb. That is, and you are saved. That is what is at stake. We need to be weeping for people that die lost. And I don't want any of us in this room to die lost. You know what? We walk out that door and get run over by a Mack truck. Surely don't want that to happen. But you know what? I know that I know that I know that if that happens to me, I'm in His arms. Man, there is such peace in that. I cannot even tell you. So if that happened to you today, I want you to pray this prayer with me right there with yourself. Lord, today is the day that I'm saying yes to you. Today is the day that I'm going to sit and rest in your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, today is the day that I'm going to make you my leader, not just my forgiver but I'm going to make you my leader. And today is the day that, that I want the harvest to see you inside of me. And Lord, I lift this body of believers up to you in your name. Amen.